0: Hi there, and welcome to Naturally Recovering Autism. I am your host, Karen Thomas, and I want to thank you so much for being here today and being a proactive parent and getting the resources that you need to help your child get the optimum results on their road to recovery. And as you know, my own son, when he was diagnosed with autism, I was told to drug him and try behavioral therapies and that there would be nothing that we could do for him and that uh, that we would be managing symptoms the rest of his life. But I didn't want to do that, and fortunately, because I have a background as a craniosacral therapist studying the brain, I knew the brain could heal. It's a scientific fact, but I didn't know that much about autism, so I began my own research and it took me about a decade, but today my son is fully recovered from his symptoms of autism. He's graduated college, he has no residual symptoms at all, and I'm here to help you, give you the resources to get your child if they're nonverbal, they can be speaking. If they can't sleep or they're sick all the time, they can be well and healthy. They can, If they're aggressive, I always like to tell parents, your child is not an angry person. It's that their brain is so inflamed and so toxic that they can't focus or think well. They can't be themselves. And they, when, when all of those things are out of the way, they can be who they really are. And today I'm really excited because we have a very special guest who um, is is world renowned, actually. I'm very excited to have him with us today, a specialist on aluminum. And we've done some information for you in the past on heavy metal detoxification. And um, I'll give you some information about that as well because I like to offer solutions. But today we have Professor Christopher Exley with us. He is a biologist who's been researching aluminum for life for over 36 years. And during this time, primarily at Keele University in the United Kingdom, he has published over 200 peer-reviewed scientific papers and has earned the nickname from his peers as "Mr. Aluminum." Christopher Exley is an English chemist known for his research on the health effects of aluminum exposure, and he is a professor of bioinorganic chemistry and a group leader of bioinorganic chemistry laboratory at Keele University which is the world's leading group researching the efficacy and safety of aluminum adjuvants adjuvants used in vaccines, and he himself is known as the world's leading researcher on aluminum, and he is the author of the book, Imagine You Are an Aluminum Atom, Discussions with Mr. Aluminum. So Dr. Exley, thank you so much for being here with us today. I really appreciate your time and your expertise on this subject.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a
0: pleasure to talk across across the Great Pond. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we uh, we went to lengths to set this up, but it is so worth it because uh, I know how much value that you have to offer. And a lot of our listeners are parents of children with autism. And it if we can maybe explain some, of course, where you get aluminum from, uh, how children might get it into their bodies and how it also pertains to the symptoms of autism and why parents of, of autism would you know, want to know about this. So maybe you could kind yeah. of start from the beginning.
1: Well, yeah. Can, can I start from a slightly different beginning? And that is you know, why, why I am involved with autism at all. Because I have to first you know, uh, make the admission that I, I really know very little about autism. So I have no expertise in work are looking specifically actually on aluminium in vaccines, aluminium adjuvants in vaccines, brought to my attention uh, a number of scientific papers that were making links between vaccination and autism. We're not talking about uh, MMR, because MMR, the vaccine itself, does not have aluminium in it but we're talking about the vaccination schedule, which of course includes MMR and many vaccines that do include aluminium adjuvants. And a number of different people wrote papers suggesting that there was this potential link between aluminium adjuvants and vaccines and the incidence and increasing, of course, burgeoning incidence, as we're told, of autism. There were also papers scientific papers making the suggestion that um, children primarily with autism had more aluminium for example in their hair or some would some would measure aluminium in blood some would measure uh, aluminium i think in urine so there was this tentative suggestion that there was something to do with aluminium and autism now at this point, which is only about five years ago, you know, I'd already been working on aluminium for over 30 years. We had already done a significant amount of work on aluminium in other human diseases, and, and specifically things like Alzheimer's disease. And so the question arose, well, do we know if there is any aluminium in brain tissue in autism because perhaps that is where we might find uh, stronger evidence of a role for aluminium in in and i'm going to call it the disease autism um, so that was the starting point and if i'm again totally frank with you at this point I could not see a role for aluminium in autism per se. Now, I think I need to sort of just say where I am at with respect to the use of the term autism. Because as you, being an expert yourself, you and your, your, your listeners, you're all widely aware that there is what's often called a spectrum and it does indeed include really, a really wide variety of outcomes with respect to you know, human behavior. My, where I come to uh, autism per se is where I am seeing what I believe, and I'll talk about why in a minute, what I believe is brain damage not about difference not about different in brain wiring not about the way in which the brain is being used but real brain damage now if there was brain damage what could be causing that and what could cause it in somebody for example as young as an infant and though that was the sort of Um, quest that we had to try to find out. So that brought us into the subject and we were already experts on measuring aluminium in human brain tissue. And so we contacted and by the way, feel free to interrupt me because I just talk and talk and talk, but anyway we contacted the Oxford Brain Bank here in the United Kingdom. And the Oxford Brain Bank is where the Autism Brain Bank is housed here in the United Kingdom and inquired about uh, human brain tissue from individuals who died with a diagnosis of autism. Now these tissues are actually quite limited in the United Kingdom. Um, we, were, we were told that they had tissues from five donors that could be, and these tissues were suitable for doing quantitative analysis of aluminum in brain tissue. And they had tissues for up to 10 donors, and these tissues were uh, something that we could use for microscopy and looking for, for example, aluminum in brain tissue. And that's all the tissue that was available to us. But that's fine, and that's what we took and we measured the aluminium first the first thing we did was the measuring of the aluminium how much aluminium was in the brain tissue and this is one of those you know moments in, in some respects that you just you know you will always remember because we had previously measured hundreds of brain samples human brain tissue samples so we had a really good idea of what we might expect to find in autism brain tissue i guess the only difference with the autism brain tissue was that the donors were primarily i think we had a a group who were in who were adolescents um teenagers some in their 20s i think one in their 30s and someone in their 50s all had died with a diagnosis of autism but that's quite a young cohort because generally when we're measuring aluminium in human brain tissue, we don't get access to young people. Uh, young people hopefully are not dying of you know, in the same numbers as, as, as older people and they're not donating their tissues to brain banks. So when the data came through, which showed really quite astoundingly high levels of aluminium in brain tissue in all five of those where we were able to do quantitative analysis. This was a shock. I mean, you know, I'm used to measuring aluminium in human brain tissue, but these data, they were so much higher than almost anything else we'd measured previously. They were very similar, actually, to a study we'd done a year before on familial Alzheimer's disease, and that's you know another story they perhaps not unrelated to water. So these quantitative data we said well come on we need to we need to know a little bit more about this. We had um, we had tissue sections which could be used for microscopy of all of those five plus five more. So we had Microscopy sections for 10 individuals who died with a diagnosis of autism. And at this time, we had developed just a couple of years previously a wonderful method to see aluminum in human brain tissue. It's really the first of its kind, and, and it allowed us then and there to produce some absolutely astounding images of where aluminum is in human brain tissue. And again, the autism brain tissue, when we used this microscopy technique, it's a fluorescence microscopy technique, again produced another really surprising result. And the really surprising result we found was that the vast majority of the aluminium that we found in all 10 of the individuals was not found, for example, in the neurons of the brain. now that is what we had found previously for diseases like Alzheimer's disease. We had found also in Alzheimer's disease that a lot of the aluminium was we call extracellular. It was associated with really neuronal debris where neurons and other things, other types of cells had died and left behind a signature of a high level of aluminium in the autism brain tissues, we found two important things. One is that almost 90% of all the aluminium was found intracellular, inside cells. And it wasn't primarily in neurons. It was in the other type of brain cells, which are known as the, the housekeeping cells of the brain, the glia, the microglia. These are the cells that are responsible for looking after the brain, for dealing with problems in the brain, for helping with neurotransmission, for helping with the development of the brain. We also found the aluminum in cells that appeared to be crossing from the body, from the blood or from the lymph into the brain. And these cells looked like white blood cells, like lymphocytes. So we'd never seen anything like this before in any other human tissue at the time. So this was, again, you know, a, a standout observation for me and for our group. It was the sort of thing that immediately worried me. It immediately changed my mind about a possible role for aluminium in autism because up until that point, we had sort of believed, I guess, that all of us through aging and and through our differences accumulate aluminium in our brain tissue with age. And it can take decades to get the sorts of levels of aluminium we found in brain tissue in Alzheimer's disease. And yet, in these individuals, some as young as 13, 14, 15 years of age, we found much more aluminum. How how could that be possible? How could they get so much aluminum in their brain tissue at such a young age? And the observation of where the aluminum was in the tissue gave us the clue. And the clue being that aluminum was transported from the body, the bloodstream, the lymphatic system across the blood-brain barrier inside cells, cells loaded up like white blood cells loaded up with aluminium. So we had a mechanism of getting really high amounts of aluminium into autism brain tissue in uh, you know, relatively short periods of time. It, it, this type of process could result in a... <coughs> excuse me, could result in a significant amount of aluminium getting into an infant's brain within hours or days of an exposure. So we also had, an, we also had the possible mechanism whereby, for example, an aluminium adjuvant in a vaccine when injected into an infant could be picked up at the injection site by these same types of white blood cells and carried into brain tissue, released where it can cause damage the type of damage we would expect from that amount of aluminium in a small area of the brain would be something like an encephalopathy in that area a massive loss of uh, neurons and neuronal damage in a very focused area of the brain so that's where we come into this subject and why probably you and i are having this discussion right
0: now yeah heavy metals are very commonly known i mean mercury lead cadmium as well as aluminum are found in the... Let me just interrupt
1: you because of course, aluminum is not a heavy metal, mm. right? So, <laughs> it's a misconception. I mean, I mean, the reason why in the good old days, I would have been flying over to talk to you in an, an aluminum airplane is because it's not a heavy metal, it's a light metal. Mm. And the reason why it's important to make the distinction is that while all the other metals you just mentioned are toxic, the mechanisms of toxicity are entirely different. So this is something that is important about aluminium, this light metal, is that it shouldn't be confused mechanistically with mercury or lead or some some of the more well-known heavy metals.
0: Sorry about that, I just a quick, quick hit, No, that's <laughs> it okay. The difference then think. being a light metal versus a heavy metal, I mean, it's still a toxic metal to the, to the system and to the brain, mm. right? I mean, we're, yeah. yeah, and we're inhaling, we're eating aluminum in various areas too. And we, we can get into that. Let me, um, let me just fit, let you keep going because it's very interesting to me. And I'm noticing, I think I have your, your study in front of me, which I'll link to the Journal of Trace Elements and Biology and that, um, that yep. it was found that statistically significant differences in aluminum content between any of the four lobes, there was no statistically different, statistical difference. So it was dispersing throughout multiple lobes of the brain, pretty much looking equally. And, of course, males had much more than females. So, um, yeah, yep. this is interesting. So yeah, go male, on.
1: female... Yeah, you know, the male-female uh, aspect, and, and that is, of course, something which you see in autism, was reproduced by, with respect to the aluminium content, that's right. Um, <clears throat> you know, with respect to whether or not you find it um, in different amounts in different parts of the brain, once you've got, first of all, very high concentration. Secondly, the relatively small number of replicates. It's almost impossible to uh, look at these things statistically. So I I would never, I I could not tell you now for sure whether in autism brain tissue, uh, one lobe is more susceptible to another than another. We we couldn't really tell you that based upon what we've got. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things, when the first paper came out, and by the way you know we we did not have um, we did not have what you might call a control cohort to measure to compare with the autism brain tissue essentially the autism brain bank does not have brains of healthy 13 14 15 23 year olds so at the time at least, we didn't have something which was directly age and gender matched, And it was only later when working with the London Brain Bank that we put together a general control group. This control group was shown by the, the, the uh, consultant neuropathologist at the London Brain Bank to be brain tissue where there was neither neuro, neuro generation, nor any sort of neurodevelopmental disorder in the individuals. In other words, these people died without showing any sort of brain disruption or disease or mental disorder. And of course, when we compared those data with the autism, it was not a surprise. people who, as I think I probably said in the follow-up paper, which is in scientific reports, um, I forget now, but it just published at the end of the beginning of this year, end of last—I can't remember—but in scientific reports. People without neurodegenerative disease, without a neurodevelopmental disorder, don't have aluminium in their brain tissue. So, by comparison, it's very, very low. So, the data for autism had to be explained somehow. Uh, you know, it, this was not just some sort of. Um, well, I mean, at one point you got you, you, you would find people who would who really didn't like the data trying to dispel them for all sorts of different reasons, um, and, and they, they, these were people just just on the internet. No, no, no scientist or any other person has written anything that, that, that in any attempt to try and disprove those data. And of course, the the microscopy data on all 10 of the uh, individuals with autism just just make the case so much more powerful, so much more powerful. So we know this. We know that for every case of autism that we have been able to look at, there is a really high level of aluminum in the brain tissue. And that aluminum is distributed in a, a way which is distinct from other diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, and gives the suggestion, gives the sort of suggestion that, the, uh, that there is a response perhaps to some sort of inflammatory type event or something of this sort that's going on. You know, we saw evidence of uh, areas of damage within the autism brain tissue where the damage was surrounded by these cells called the glia, the microglia, and these microglia were full of aluminium. Now, of course, the idea is that you know, when when the brain is damaged, let's say by you know, something causing an, an inflammatory type response in the brain or something similar, it could be an ischemic event, or, the brain signals to the rest of the body for help, and one of the things that does happen there is that additional helper cells come from the blood, come from the lymph, to try to help out. But imagine if those helper cells are also loaded up with aluminum. All that's happening is that you're making the problem even worse by bringing more aluminum into the the brain tissue. You know, there when you get a mechanism whereby aluminum can accumulate in the brain tissue.
0: And so they're, I think that, they're finding all of this, sorry, it's loaded yeah. up the cells, the lymphatics, they're known to have poor detoxification. I know in utero, things can be passed, mom can be toxic or inhale toxic things that can pass to the baby. And so how you're seeing all of these, it is interesting how they're dispersed differently from what somebody has in autism versus somebody who has Alzheimer's and how the brain is, is affected, and, and maybe when in life, like where these things are coming from as well, we could get into eventually.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is potentially, and I have to be careful here, but there is a potentially some sort of link with Alzheimer's. Um, for example, people with familial Alzheimer's disease, get Alzheimer's disease sometimes as early as their 30s and 40s and 50s. When we And we have looked at two different cohorts of individuals with familial Alzheimer's disease. One is called the London Cohort from the London Brain Bank, and another one is a, a Colombian from South America Cohort. And in both cases, we also found really high levels of aluminium in relatively young people. And The the potential link here, I think, with respect to something like autism is that something about the brain and the wiring of the individual perhaps with familial Alzheimer's disease or the way in which the brain is wired in an individual who may may go on to get autism is, is different. There is something really quite fundamentally different Not every child who receives an aluminium vaccine, or aluminium adjuvant in a vaccine, gets autism. We know this. Mm -hmm. We don't know too much about, uh, you know, how much aluminium is in infants' brains because, you know, luckily, we're we're not seeing huge numbers of deaths, and we're not, we're not, we're not able to measure uh, aluminium in brain tissue in infants very, very easily. But there has to be something. I believed at least, that was enabling the rapid uptake of aluminium in brain tissue in some individuals compared to others. That certainly appeared to be the case in familial Alzheimer's disease where there are genetic leakages to the disease. And I'm sure it's probably the case with the autism tissues, at least the autism brain tissues that we looked at, you know, one of the things that we published a little later in one of our other papers was we, we showed some Alzheimer's like neuropathology in, in these uh, autism brain tissues. So we showed deposition of this protein called amyloid beta in their brain. And we showed the deposition of this amyloid beta associated with the the vasculature associated with the brain barrier. And, and this is something that in uh, Alzheimer's disease is, uh, is called frontophilic amyloid angiopathy. And sometimes it's associated with the brain's response to something from the periphery trying to get into the brain. In other words, the brain tries to protect itself from something from the blood or the lymph trying to get in a toxin potentially trying to get in So there are some I think there are some similarities uh, in the sort of autism that I'm describing to you now these we knew very very little about the donors of these tissues we knew nothing about them we knew nothing about their vaccination records we knew nothing about Really anything at all. We didn't know whether or not they had uh, what I would call a severe and disabling autism. We, we just didn't know. But we just had their diagnosis. We knew, for example, things like that several of them had, died, uh, had epilepsy and had died following an epileptic fit. So there was this connection with epilepsy. And of course, we've also looked at epilepsy, late onset epilepsy in adults and found aluminium there. So, and we also found very similar types of uh, distribution of aluminium in epilepsy, uh, at late onset adult epilepsy. So there were some connections there with respect to epilepsy. But generally, we knew very little about these individuals. But if I'm you know, put on the spot... I'm going to say that it would be highly unlikely that any of the individuals that we looked at aluminum in their brain tissue, it would be highly unlikely that any of them did not have some form of brain damage. So, you know, when, when I'm thinking about autism, I can only talk to you about the cases that we have seen, and these cases would have had brain damage.
0: Is that caused by the aluminum, or all of these cells? Yeah. Well, well, it's a. I know I
1: I would say that you cannot have this amount of aluminum in your brain without the aluminum causing damage. Mm
0: -hmm. Correct. So maybe we should look at where uh, where some of these sources are in our environment because we know how much they affect biology and the brain, and there are studies that show some some links to autism and alzheimer's and uh no epilepsy i'm assuming things like parkinson's as well you know these these certain neurological issues that come up for people and where are you seeing a lot of the exposure of aluminum coming from these days
1: yeah well i mean i i uh, gave i gave a, I gave a, a lecture a few years ago now at at Autism One, where I just sort of tongue-in-cheek, but I I demonstrated why an infant, a neonate, is the ideal uh, experimental model for aluminium intoxication. So in the first instance, of course, when when a child is... (laughs) I write about this extensively in, 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 in my book, but um, the, exposure may, the exposure can start at uh, conception. We know aluminium is in human sperm. Uh, so we already know that there is the possibility that aluminium is being transferred to the fertilized egg. And every stage thereafter, there, are, there is exposure to aluminium. So the exposure to aluminium will start at conception and continue with the mother. But then upon birth, you sort of think, well, okay, the child, the infant, has now been released from being part of the mother and is a free-living individual. But then what do we do? Well, one would like to think that The infant gets breastfed, but that's actually not the case for probably 90% of of infants born today. Most go on to infant formulas. We've always spent over 10 years uh, documenting the scandal of aluminium in infant formulas. Mm -hmm. Infant formulas are heavily contaminated with aluminium. So we start feeding our infants from whatever age it is. Their only form of nutrition is something that's heavily contaminated by aluminium. We we then decide at certain points, depending on which country you live in, to give them vaccinations with aluminium and very high amounts of aluminium. So, you know, infants, my guess, (laughs) I always say, look, an infant is probably one of the, is, is absolutely incredibly robust to a certain extent. But we are challenging them with aluminium for all of the early parts of their life. And if for any reason, any of those infants is predisposed to something which would allow aluminium to accumulate in their brain tissue more quickly than it would otherwise, then we are also predisposing them to uh, uh, some sort of inflammatory or encephalopathy within particular areas of the brain. And therein, we we could start to see something along the lines of of a disabling autism so <clears throat> there's you know I I write about the aluminium age all of us are, are, are exposed to aluminium in our everyday life in, in myriad ways too many ways to even begin to start you know forming a list from um, and I write again and I, I you know if you go to my website and read my papers and then they've been summarized in my new book but but the, there are ways, of course, where we try to prevent that and we try to protect ourselves from that. Yeah, I... have... The unfortunate case is that when I started to work on autism, even though we simply are, you know, we're interested in aluminium in all ways in which aluminium impacts upon all living things, I started my work on fish and, and, and more latterly in humans, we then suddenly become part of what's been called, you know, an anti-vaccine movement simply because we highlight that there is a possibility that aluminium in a vaccine will go into an infant's brain and could be the cause of autism. And, you know, that is a, that's just inevitable really because we cannot disguise the science. The science is there. The science is hard and robust and it doesn't really matter how much someone tries to label my group and myself and others in different ways. It doesn't change the science. Now, you know, that, that means to me that there are, there are infants out there who should definitely not receive vaccines that contain aluminium adjuvants. It doesn't mean necessarily all, although personally, I, I prefer that uh, no, no vaccine contained an aluminium adjuvant, but aluminium adjuvants have proven to be the most effective adjuvants for vaccination. So if one is, if one is going to continue to use them, then a proportion, and it might be as high as 10% or more, I'm not sure what that proportion is, of infants. And thereafter, actually, adults need to be protected from them. But we cannot do that unless we have the means to find out, well, which infants? What is it about someone's physiology, their makeup, perhaps their genetic makeup, which means that they are predisposed to accumulating large amounts of aluminum rapidly in their brain tissue? And of course, you try and get a funding organization to support research like that. It is just You know, a complete no-go area. Mm -hmm. No one will go there. You are simply being labelled as something that that
0: that that is you are not. But what the science, of course, definitely says is is the case. And there are, uh, say, companies, figures out there that don't want that information publicised. So nobody wants to really bring it forward. Um, But as you're saying, you are a top world researcher, scientist. You've seen the data. It exists. So parents just need to make their own educated decisions on what they do for their children, and that's to gain as much education as they can. Um, how to know whether or not your child is more susceptible pre-vaccination or, or pre-conception, pre-birth, all of that. Um, there are certain factors, of course, to look at in the mother's toxicity and Pathogenic bacteria she carries, uh, you know, uh, co-infections, mold, Lyme, other things that a lot of us do carry that uh, we pass in utero, pass through breast milk, and that um, those children do tend to be more susceptible. And because of the parents I work with usually have very similar things to a lot of their kids, not all, but most, uh, some of the, you know, a lighter version. So, you know, it's hard to know that answer. So the 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 erring on the side of caution, of course, is to to not, not vaccinate, which then, you know, some people are put into a category, as you mentioned, a non-vaxxer. It's just really they're having, you know, they have, there's enough scientific data showing that there are problems with those vaccinations and they don't or they already already had a child who had exposure. I saw a change in my own son right after a vaccination. And, um, you know, sometimes it's visible right away and sometimes it's not, it's cumulative. It'll, it'll, you know, one thing leads to another and you might see it a little bit later. And when the neurological system just kind of says that's enough and it crosses some breaking point and you start seeing the symptoms get stronger and stronger. So it, the key is really to know to protect, I'm big on environmental toxins, you know, uh, the, the pure water source, make sure you have a very good filter, um, doing the best you can in your home. I will link on the show notes for this uh, for this at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 103. There will be a link I'll give to a natural zeolite that I, that I will also link to the multiple studies behind it that help to remove uh, a lot of these things, these toxins and metals, even intracellularly, because it is a way to protect ourselves each day um, and doing the best that we can do you have further things that you would like to share about that, um, Dr. Exley?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think, particularly when we're talking about infants, um, the, the best policy is, is avoidance, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I understand that where infant formulas are concerned, that's often not the case. You know, people don't necessarily choose to use an infant formula, they have no choice. However, we do publish the brands, the actual brands, and how much aluminium is in those in our several papers on this. So, the idea, of course, is always to look at every possible way where you can reduce the overall exposure um, that an infant is getting um, with respect to aluminium, and particularly in those young early days when this is their only sort of nutritional source. So, the other area that See, we have, my my very first piece of research, of of any note, showed that there is a, a natural protector against aluminium, and that is another element called silicon. We showed that even though aluminium was killing fish in acid lakes, we showed that if we added silicon to the water, Nothing happened. The fish were perfectly happy. And so silicon protects against the toxicity of aluminium. And we we're able to take this work and we're still, you know, it's, been the, it's been the sort of uh, backbone of all the research that we've done over the last nearly 40 years. We're able to take this research through to uh, clinical trials showing that if you drink Um, a mineral water that is high in silicon and even though on the bottle it's called silica, it's not really silica. Silica doesn't exist in in these sorts of conditions. We're talking about soluble silicon which is something called silicic acid. If you drink a mineral water which is rich in silicic acid you produce aluminium in your urine. And we had some remarkable results in this area with people with, for example, Alzheimer's disease, thereafter people with multiple sclerosis and lots of healthy volunteer studies too. So all of this is published. It is in fact the only published method whereby uh, in a clinical trial, it has been shown that doing something proactively helps to get aluminium out of the body. You mentioned other things, but none of those, including the much sort of lauded zeolites and stuff, none of those have ever been shown to help to remove aluminium from the body. They may have other benefits. I, I really don't know. It's not, not my area. But so, of course... I I, I drink a silicon rich mineral water every single day and I try to drink about a litre because I know that it's my baseline protection against living in the aluminium age and getting an infant to drink water or any volume of water is of course not not normally part of of that, 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 that time of life. We're actually just about to go. We, we've finished some research where we're looking at making infant formulas with silicon-rich mineral waters to see if that improves uh, or helps to remove the aluminium that's in infant formulas from, from an infant's body. And some of that research that will—it's well it's probably going to be because of everything that's happening now with COVID restrictions and everything. It may take another six to nine months before it's published, but. But the, the good news is that you can do things like that. So if you were to make your, your, your infant formula up in a silicon-rich mineral water, and in the US the most famous one is, is uh, Fiji water. You know, we don't get any money from any silicon-rich mineral water company. So uh, I, I just look at the amount of silicon that's in the water. If it's above a value called 30 parts per million, 30 milligrams per liter, I say, yep, that's silicon rich. It will help to remove aluminium from your body. And I just say, if you can drink it every day, do so. And if you can encourage infants at the earliest possible age to drink water and or use the silica rich mineral water to make drinks or even use it to make infant formulas, then you will provide them with some protection in that early part of life. And, you know, that's all. In terms of, apart from avoiding, And again, with things like vaccinations, I've written uh, about it both on my medical blog, which you have access to through my email, but also extensively in the new book. If you want to continue with vaccinations, including those that have aluminium adjuvants, then how can you do that? in a way which reduces your overall exposure and all the potential dangers associated with the exposure. And you can do that, and I write about that. But it does mean people have to be proactive, they have to talk to their pediatrician, they have to make their pediatrician agree with them that this is the way they want to go forward, and not all pediatricians want, want to be told how to do things, particularly when they don't believe there is, a, there is an issue or a problem. So there are ways that, that you can do this. You know, you, you have had a wonderful experience in some respects, I guess, with your, was it, was it a boy? My son, yes. Well, it's your son. And if, I, I, I firmly believe that, First of all, the damage that's done, that could be done, very early on, before a child will be diagnosed with autism, and I don't know what you would normally say, but I think here in the UK, we wouldn't diagnose someone with autism before they were like four years old or something like that.
0: Yeah, they commonly, maybe two, but it's usually somewhere around three or... Or they'll start looking at signs but then they won't actually do anything diagnostic till at least maybe three.
1: Yeah. Because uh, brain damage is very difficult to repair. But it can be stopped in its tracks. Um, And there is some degree of what we, we call neurogenesis. And So my worry is that what's happening with respect to, say, autism is that in those infants that are predisposed to accumulate more aluminium in their brain tissue, there are no breaks on the system in the first several years of life. First of all, potentially at least, You may or may not be noticing anything unusual in your child to want to to, to assume there might be a problem. And secondly, most of us don't live the sort of lives that you and me and other natural health advocates talk about. Mm -hmm. If you look at normal life for most, aluminium is everywhere in it. And if there is no, if there is nothing on a packet to say, avoid aluminium, it might cause autism. Nobody, no parent is going to know about it. No one is going to take any heed of it. No one is going to try to take any precautions. And the aluminium can build up in the brain tissue in those first few years of life really significantly. And I would suspect the brain damage that that could cause may be very difficult to repair very difficult of course it's it's continuing if you do nothing about
0: it that's the key is prevention but then also stopping it by doing the things that you know you can do and and taking the time and the effort to live that lifestyle and just make it a clean lifestyle it's really not that difficult to do but people are just get so used to their comfort foods and their you know the things that they do that aren't healthy yeah. people try to laugh at me sometimes they're like i like yeah I, I treat myself daily like people do only when they get sick you know <laughs> but that's that's not how yeah. i live you know so if you just take care of yourself ahead of time it right. does help
1: yeah so they do the exact opposite when they're yeah. sick of what they really should be doing they think well i'll have a treat or something because it'll make, it'll make me uh, feel better uh. and yeah i guess to a certain <laughs> extent that might be true but it's also <laughs> It's also potentially loading up something that's going to make you feel worse.
0: Mm-hmm. And if they're not educated enough, if, you know, if you don't know, I think the more you know, the more you're conscious and hopefully responsible about it, rather, you know, than not wanting to know or not knowing, and you yeah. know, and well, not listen, being able for how, to.
1: For how many years now? I mean, I, I'm fifty-seven, and there, there haven't been many years of my life where cigarette packet didn't say something about it killing you or causing lung cancer or something like that. But none of the products that are rich in aluminium say that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the truth is that if a parent would read the patient information leaflet on a vaccine Mm -hmm. before they accept the vaccine and read the serious adverse events that vaccine has been agreed to cause by the manufacturer, you probably would think twice about it. But again, no pediatrician is insisting, or very few that parents look at, or guardians or wherever it is, look at this information before they vaccinate. And many uh, are totally irresponsible. They talk about, you know, they use baby tool. They talk about minuscule amounts of aluminium when this is just a ludicrous thing. Um, you know, they, they are being irresponsible in every way and we talk about well people aren't educated enough well they need information you know I'm I'm educated enough because I've spent 40 years learning about this and you're educated in your area because you have made the effort to do that for your particular area but I have to be honest you know I know very little about anything else (laughs) and for a long time I sort of relied upon regulatory organizations and others to tell me what I should know before I decide to do something. And of course, working on aluminium for 40 years has told me that organizations like the World Health Organization or the FDA or here the Food Standards Agency, that these are not organizations that tell you anything correct, or here in the UK, the NHS, anything correct about aluminium. Nothing. So, if they are giving false information about aluminium, then they're probably not giving the best information about all sorts of other things either. So we are we are probably being being let down in a major way. But uh, in terms of in terms of specifically aluminium, you know, I hope for example, I mean, I don't know how many people are going to read my book. I I hope many because it's uh, it, it, it's a, it's the only book I will write because it, it has been a real process for me writing it. And it is about, it is about my life, really. It, it brings in not only my science and all of the peer-reviewed science, which, which is all going to be accessible through the book, but also my response to it and how I am linked to it and how it has affected me. Now it's, uh, if, I can just, if I can just digress slightly, just earlier today, I had an, an email from someone and this person, when I first had the email from them, I thought I, I thought it was coming from myself because this person is called Chris Exley. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting email. But this person called Chris Exley has a autistic son and his name is Chris Exley. And when I received that information, you know, that felt something, you know, it, 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 it goes inside you. It affects you in a way that you think, well, look, whatever happens, whoever's saying these things about us and what we do, we just have to take this process through as far as we can go to see if there is anything we can do if our research is is correct if aluminum is involved in some cases in autism then
0: those cases could be prevented right and prevention is the key in taking care of yourself and knowing how to do that because it's more than diet it's detoxification it's co-infections it's daily living in and around your home I will you also mentioned about the leaflets on vaccinations, and I did an interview with Dr. Sherry Tenpenny that I will link to also in the show notes as well uh, for the listeners uh, if you want to learn more about how to ask what to ask for in those leaflets and and know that it is your personal right to ask to see them because you know companies avoid telling us things directly doesn't mean we don't have the right to ask for them or look for that information and find it. So um, I'll uh, I'll give you a a link to that as well so you can help it. That always know that it, it is your right to ask questions about anything. And if you want to learn more, you don't have to do what somebody's telling you. Go out, do your own research. That's why I try to do interviews like this with experts to educate you so that you can make educated decisions for yourself and your family. And that's what it's about is just continuing to educate yourself so that you know more.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up?
1: No, not really. I mean, no, there isn't. It's a very difficult subject area for me. I mean, I'll give you another one quick (laughs) example. I I have a family living next door to me uh, who have one child. He is autistic. but. I cannot bring myself to, you know, go round to them and say, listen, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. It's a very, for me, this is all, can become a very personal thing. And you, you sort of, if someone comes to you and asks, like you have done, then I will give my opinions based upon our science. But am I going to, you know, Go to my neighbours. We who we talk. <laughs> we talk about the child, but they don't know who I am. <laughs> you know, I, I we don't live anywhere near the university or something. They don't know who I am. They all they know is I work at the university. They don't know the work that I do. I, I guess they haven't come across me on the internet or whatever. So I don't feel in any sort of position to. Try to force anything upon them in terms of information or possible therapy. And I feel sort of the same way talking to you because, you know, many of your listeners and stuff, uh, they will see autism in a different light than I see it. I, like I said, I am not an expert. I can only see it in the light of uh, the experiences I've had with, with the human brain tissue. And also with colleagues, I mean, you you know, J.B. Handley, for example, I've been in
0: yes, close contact him. with him mm-hmm. for a
1: while and, and, and his information that he's uh, about his personal experiences. So, you know, personal experiences tell me that there is something happening here that we need to understand that we could probably do something about if only we had the support of governments, etc.
0: Yeah, J.B. has some really that. good information in his book. Uh, I'll link to that as well I yeah. did an interview with him. But, yeah, it's a great uh, book. Yeah, uh, yeah. on um, how to stop the the autism epidemic. And it's a, a lot of vaccine, um, a lot of lawyer depositions, a lot of studies and facts. And also, you know, uh, Dr. Exley, as you're saying, you have people who you know with autism. I hear this so often when somebody finds out what I do. And like, oh, my neighbor, my friend, because there are so many children diagnosed with autism today. Usually, if you don't have somebody in your own family with autism, you know somebody who does. So I say, like, just refer them to my website, naturally recovering autism.com, and say, there's some really good resources on this, you know, might might be worth looking at. And then, you know, you've you've yeah. kind of at least given them something because so many people are looking for direction, they're looking for answers, and they don't know where to go because As you know, the internet is just, and and everything out there's so much information, how to weed through it and find out what you're really supposed to do. And because I have a personal story and and connection with autism due to my own son and my own journey, that's why I created this unique step-by-step program. It's in over 43 countries already where I walk parents through the steps because I don't want to see them frustrated, scared. You know, confused anymore and not knowing what to do. For those who want answers yep. and want help walking through it, that's what I do. Because you yep. know, as you mentioned, you're just seeing somebody write you with an email with your own name attached to it that said autism. You felt that, so imagine what it's like yep. to have a child with with autism. So it's it's it becomes absolutely. very personal as you as you can kind of felt this morning. Yeah, absolutely. You can see the passion. It's been behind. lovely to talk. To you Karen. <laughs> it was great to talk to you too. Thank you so much. Um, again, any last would, thing? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I'll just, well, uh, only on only on a practical level. If you want me to advertise you the link to this, I can do that through my contacts.
0: Oh yeah, that would be wonderful. Uh, I'm certain that there are a lot of people because you study aluminum, that have, and you do have a paper on. Uh, I've seen that piece on au- autism and Alzheimer's where it leads people to you. So then they are looking for resources. So that would be wonderful. And I will link to uh, your medical blog and your website as well on the show notes, uh, which will again, everybody be at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 103, number 103. Um, and you'll be able to, to find anything on Dr. Exley there as well, including the link to his book. So again, thank you, Dr. Exley, so much for being here today. I really appreciate appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man and, and your expertise and all the work that, that you're doing as well to, to help give us the education that we need on this important topic.
1: Thank you.